Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. One of the most outrageous violations of human rights on the planet today is the detention of more than a million Uyghurs in China. People advocating to close the camps continue to make progress in spite of threats to Uyghurs in the diaspora. With me is Luisa Greva. She is Director of External Affairs for the Uyghur Human Rights Project, and we're going to get an update on what's been happening. Thanks for joining us, Luisa. Great to be with you, Jerome. I think people might have noticed back in July that Chinese officials came out and they said that the majority of the Uyghurs detained in internment camps had been released. They'd been returned to society. Many of them had jobs. Did you see evidence that things had changed? Absolutely not. In fact, that statement by a government spokesperson was walked back immediately and uh, was reposted uh, on the government site saying 90% of those who, quote, graduated from those so-called re-education centers had found jobs. So even the initial announcement was uh, not so dramatic. It's quite clear that people have not been released. I'll tell you, tell you what, Uyghur Americans, um, thousands of people who live in the U.S., they still can't reach their relatives. So that just tells you the region is still on complete lockdown. Now, there's also been some reports out that there's, you know, when they, when they say they have found jobs, uh, there's discussion about whether there is forced labor in, with, with some of the uh, people there. Uh, how have you been able to sort that out? That's a, a great point. The government has actually invited some friendly media, government-controlled media from other countries that tend to uh, support the Chinese government's position. They take video of people who are uh, working at jobs, and they all rush up to the camera and say, I'm here voluntarily. You know, that alone is suspicious. Uh, it's, it's quite clear that uh, from relative Uyghurs who are outside of China, who've heard indirectly their relatives go to their job five days a week, for example, not allowed to go home, they might be able to go home on the weekend. They're basically locked in and they're working for uh, a pittance in wages. That's forced labor. And there's uh, the kind of things they're doing, there's a lot of cotton that's grown in the area and there's um, some kind of manu- you know, uh, manufacturing for, for Western stores. That's right. The, the global supply chain uh, is implicated. There's a great new report out by uh, another human rights group uh, about cotton production, 84% of the cotton used in China's textile industry is is produced in the Uyghur region. Uh, The factories for processing that cotton also have now moved there in a dramatic way in the last three, four years. And so where's the labor coming from? Uh, There was a scandal, you may have heard. um, Badger Software was selling goods to U.S. college campuses branded with our American uh, college logos turned out the factory uh, was one that was operating uh, with forced labor from these camps where Uyghurs are just locked up, uh, you know, secret arbitrary detention. One of the other things that's been happening is um, some harassment of Uyghurs in the diaspora. And can you describe what's happening? You did a, a report called Repression Across Borders. Um, what, what, was, what was going on there? You know, the, it, the repression doesn't stop uh, inside the, the homeland. The Chinese government agents, police, actually directly calling Uyghurs living abroad, students, professionals, who look at their phone. There's a WeChat message, you know, that Chinese messaging app that everyone in China uses. You need to be careful. If you 
you should be careful not to damage your relative's fate. So it's a, it's a threat to say, if you speak up about what's happening, or you join rallies, or you uh, call for accountability or for greater UN or U.S. government action on this human rights crisis, um, your relatives could suffer. They could be sent to the camps. Now, the, um, there, some of these threats are kind of dramatic, and we did uh, yes. render some of them into with some uh, some actors and some scoring, and we're going to play a couple minutes of what it's like to be threatened uh, by the Chinese authorities. Please don't be a disaster for your loved ones. You'd better think about your family members. A text message from a police officer to a Uyghur living abroad. I'm getting continuous harassing calls from police in China. Today, I got a message threatening me to detain all my relatives and asking me to cooperate instead of harming them by my activities. It's very frustrating, leading to suicide thoughts. They are just telling us, we are watching you. Wherever you go, you are still Chinese. Even though abroad, it doesn't mean they can't do something to you because they have your friends, your relatives. A Uyghur American after being contacted by Chinese state security agents. All I wanted was to get my degree and go back to my homeland. My parents are suffering because of me. By breaking the silence, I'm risking the life of my family members. They are afraid of being reported by informants who could either be Uyghur or Chinese, and they essentially send their names back to the Chinese government. And the Chinese government questions their family members and then detains them or sends them to camps. A Uyghur American student. How could you do this to our parents? To us? What kind of daughter are you? You should go to the Chinese embassy right now and denounce all the things you said about the Chinese government in all of the interviews you gave to Radio Free Asia and tell them you love China. Tell them you were pressured by the Uyghur organizations in the United States to lie about your detention and torture in the camps and take back everything you said. Otherwise, China can get you wherever you hide. A voicemail sent to a camp survivor by her brother. Those are from uh, Repression Across Borders, a report of the uh, Uyghur uh, Human Rights Project. And Louise Greva is with us, and we're talking about what's happening with Uyghurs. Um, a lot of that stuff is uh, – that's scary. I mean they're, they're basically always just uh, threatening to silence people with uh, threats against their families inside China. It's terrifying. First of all, how do the police get a hold of your number? Uh, they find you and then won't leave you alone. So this is a case where the government uh, is actually hounding people um, throughout the world and, and has even threat- told people uh, they need to return to China. And unfortunately, before the extent of this incredible lockup of at least one and a half million people became known, some people went back thinking that they would go and look into things and help their family members, and they haven't been heard from since. Uh, do the people who are contacted by the Chinese government, what's their reaction? Do I mean, what do they do? Do they kind of quiet down their criticism? Do they do, do some uh, decide to amp it up? Uh, you, you've talked to some of these people. What is their ideas? Different people have to make it. It's a terrible choice. 
um, they feel guilty already. They're basically survivors of, a, of an ethnic eradication camp, uh, campaign themselves, right? They can't reach their relatives. They, they have nightmares every night. Are my relatives being tortured? They don't know because they've deleted them from their social media accounts. They don't answer their phones. Um, and the, so Uyghurs in America, for example, uh, one, one couple uh, did talk to a reporter and said, we didn't know what to do. If we speak, will that cause more torture for our family members? So they said, finally, we decided we have to put the fate of our relatives into the hands of God. And they went ahead and spoke publicly. Hmm. One of the other harassing things that's been happening has to do with iPhones and the hacking of iPhones. Uh, what has been happen- what's been happening with that? Yes, the <laughs> hackers uh, working on behalf of Chinese the security authorities have, for many years, uh, actively tried to surveil, uh, all, conduct all kinds of electronic and even in-person surveillance of, of Uyghur Americans to intimidate them, um, to prevent them from uh, people from joining community groups or um, activism groups to speak up about what's happening. It's it's all to uh, try to mute the international criticism um, and and control the, the narrative. What kind of reaction do companies have? I mean, Apple has spoken out about this and, and you know, identified it as a problem and uh, U.S. government officials. Uh, uh, do, can they really do anything? There needs to be much more vigorous due diligence on the part of the tech companies. Um, unfortunately, not only these international platforms, which can easily be exploited, as we know, even in our American politics, right, the disinformation, misinformation, uh, and distraction campaigns that are interfering in our own um, political debate that can easily happen among an exile or diaspora community like the Uyghur Americans. Um, but there has to be, a, if, if you're going to operate a platform like that, it's you have to at least ensure that agents of a foreign power with hostile intent committing massive human rights violations is not able to uh, use those platforms. And, and let me just say, using the platforms is not simply a you know, like a flame war or being criticized or what people don't like about some social media uh, negative, like negative campaigning. These are, these are actually illegal threats um, when, when it is against federal law to use electronic communications to intimidate somebody with the intent of limiting their First Amendment rights. I'm talking with Louise Greva. She's Director of External Affairs for the Uyghur Human Rights Project, and we're talking about some of the things in their Repression Across Borders report. I did want to turn to some of the things that are happening um, more broadly with uh, different countries and how they're having uh, relationships with China. Uh, There almost seems to be kind of a scorecard of countries who will speak out against China and countries who are going to be neutral and countries who are going to support China. Can you give us a little thumbnail sketch of what what it's like? Yes. Uh, Naturally, governments that are concerned about uh, human freedom uh, speak up when they hear about an outrage like this, as as you put it so so rightly at the beginning of the show, Jerome. Um, At the same time, the Chinese government is completely unapologetic about using economic leverage and intense diplomatic pressure on governments uh, to basically hold hostage economic trade relations. Um, In the case of Canada, for example, arbitrarily holding two Canadians who did nothing in retaliation for the Huawei, uh, the extradition cooperation on the Huawei CEO um, 
who is is being held in Canada awaiting extradition to the U.S. on criminal charges and in blatant retaliation uh, holding those two Canadians uh, without trial. So there's uh, other countries, particularly the, the countries involved in the Belt and Road Initiative that really need Chinese uh, in, uh, investment, uh, infrastructure development. Um, they are well conditioned by uh, intense Chinese government pressure not to criticize the government for anything, including this outrageous human rights crisis. Now, from what I was uh, reading, there's 22 countries who speak out on the Uyghur issue and criticize uh, Beijing on this. But there's 37 countries who have signed a letter that support China. And so the the number of countries who support China is larger than the number of countries speaking out. Yep, that's what happens with uh, the economic leverage that the Chinese government has. And of course, they're intensely focused on this. Um, the it's, it's really quite shameful. In fact, I think the Turkish foreign ministry spokesman really put it best. He said in January what's happening uh, to the Uyghurs is really a great shame for humanity. So the outrage should know no borders. Unfortunately, governments have to uh, calculate uh, the price they might pay. And it's interesting to dissect what happens inside the Muslim world. You would think that in the Muslim world, everybody would be concerned about this. I'm sure people are. Um, but their governments sometimes are um, negotiating their uh, their position with China and their own ideas about um, about political Islam, and it seems like a lot of them, the Gulf countries, all hang with China. Well, the strange thing here is this isn't really. It's not about political Islam. You know what's happening is really a war. It is a war on Islam. Uyghurs are, are forced to eat pork. They are detained for observing Ramadan. Um, actually, fasting during Ramadan has been banned for uh, many years now, which you think is kind of incredible. How can you force someone not to fast? But it's always been uh, seen as, for, for government officials and students, uh, the idea is you have to adhere to Communist Party uh, rules, which are, uh, you know, we don't observe religion. And then that's been now amped up to the nuclear level where you can not just lose a job, but... Um, be detained. You can't have a prayer mat in your house. You can't pray. Uh, you can, certainly can't have a Koran. So these are all basically ordinary things. Um, even something like wearing a beard is seen as, quote, a sign of extremism, uh, which, you know, think about it objectively and logically. That's utterly a, ridiculous. And so this has become really these things are an excuse for a, a wholesale suppression of an entire uh, ethno religious group. And it really, for every, everyone who cares about religious liberty and certainly for Muslims who say it's part of our identity, how you're, you're really trying to, you're criminalizing our religion. I wonder if we could uh, say with something about the U.S. official response to this. Is there, um, any, is there movement on the Magnitsky Act, which is used to, uh, to put out sanctions on human rights violators? Is there uh, some legislation out there that uh, is – I mean there has been bipartisan legislation on this issue. And today is the perfect day to be talking about this. Last night the Senate passed – the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act. It's, it's just truly a huge step forward in holding China accountable and putting the full weight of the, the Senate behind a very vigorous uh, U.S. government response. And so that, that's a moment for celebration. That act uh, has a strong sense of the Congress to 
impose Magnitsky sanctions. It's the uh, Global Magnitsky uh, Human Rights and Accountability Act of 2016, signed by President Obama, implemented by President Trump. And as you say, there's tremendously bipartisan support, including from the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, all the way to Republican uh, Congress Senator Rubio, to impose sanctions on the officials who are responsible for this mass incarceration of the Uyghurs. Uh, hasn't happened yet, um, but there is frequent, frequent uh, c- concern, at least expressed by U.S. government officials, including our Secretary of State, uh, our Vice President Pence, uh, Ambassador Brownback, who covers international religious freedom. So, uh, so we'll look forward to some kind of action on that. You expect the U.S. to act? Uh, certainly, we urge even more vigorous action. And in fact, uh, you mentioned 22 countries. What will really have an effect is coordinated action among countries. The UN, you know, this is what the UN should be for. There should be resolutions in the UN. Chinese uh, influence in the UN, unfortunately, is so great that it's perverted the processes that should exist for countries to come together and uphold the principles uh, of the UN Charter and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But the U.S. is really leading on this. Um, We're certainly calling for Magnitsky sanctions, uh, calling also for expanded entity lists so that the companies, there are U.S. companies that are still engaged in providing technology and services to the government agencies that are um, using electronic surveillance uh, to control the Uyghurs. Louise Greva is Director of External Affairs for the Uyghur Human Rights Project. Thanks for talking with us about what's been happening in the Repression Across Borders report. Thanks a lot. Very welcome. I did want to mention uh, something else that's happening, and it's very interesting that uh, the U.N. General Assembly is going to uh, get back into the swing of things on September 17th, and there is um, some protest that's going to go on at the at the at the Chinese consulate. And with me is Yosef Roth. He is a co-organizer of the Uyghur Rally at the United Nations. He's a rabbinical student in New York. Thanks for joining us, Yosef. It's my pleasure, Jerome. Thanks for having me. Um, explain what you're going to do there on the 17th. Um, so to give some background, uh, China's main response when accused of you know these human rights abuses has been either in denial, uh, you know, say that these camps don't exist or they're not, you know, they're not actually imprisoned. Um, that's been one approach. The other approach is just sort of indifference, where they'll say this is all an internal affair, um, and other countries, you know, ha- have no say in how we conduct our own business. Uh, so the way we're planning to respond to both of these is conceptually, this is this is a horrific response, robbing you know a human being of their freedom. That's a global affair. You know, no person, no country, no anyone has the right to imprison people against their will. So our a demonstration is going to be that at the opening of the general assembly. Um, we're going to project um, onto the Chinese consulate um, evidence of the Uyghur oppression, um, sort of to say that, you know, as the UN meets, uh, China has to be viewed as you know perpetrator of y- human rights abuses. And, you know, we can't accept either their denial or their indifference. And we need to mark them with their crimes and hold them accountable. So you're, and you're going to use a high-powered projector and you are going to throw things up on the Chinese consulate uh, walls? Yeah, so we're collaborating with a group called the Illuminators. Uh, they're a social justice group, and um, in general, the way that they, de- they demonstrate is they use a high-powered projector and transform a public space into, uh, you know, a statement. And what pictures are you going to use? So one, there's a general poster of, uh, I guess, um, 
a cartoon member of the Uyghur community being silenced by a Chinese hand. Um, and then various slogans, I guess, to make our point. One example is never again means never again. And I think this really drives the point home that, uh, you know, we can't, like, listen, I guess, to China's excuses. The world has to be vigilant about these things. Like, never again means never again. That one of the lessons we need to learn from the Holocaust is that humans are responsible for each other. And we all must be vigilant in, you know, seeing where human rights abuses occur. Yosef Roth is a co-organizer of the Uyghur Rally at the United Nations on September 17th. He's a rabbinical student in New York. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about what you're doing. My pleasure. Coming up after the break, we'll discuss uh, Sky Day and have some conversation about how to get involved with the environment. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's an initiative that combines art and science and teaches people how the sky and climate function. It is called the Sky Day Project. And we've been talking the last couple of years with the project's founder, Ben Whitehouse, and he's here. He's brought a bunch of friends, and we are going to have some fun uh, learning and thinking about our sky. Nice to see you, Ben. Great to be here. Explain what you've been doing here. Yeah, so Sky Day is a free educational platform on all things climate and sky with a special emphasis nowadays on climate, given how pressing that issue is. And you can find us at skydayproject.com. So think of us as a collaboration of artists and scientists, neighbors and friends, united to do the right thing for future generations. And a lot of people take pictures of the sky and they share them with, with each other. And they could have had some really good pictures last night in some of the suburbs. There's some monster clouds and thunder and things. Yeah, right. So Sky Day is also a date on the calendar. It's a fast-growing annual collab, uh, celebration of our climate and sky. And it's coming up next Friday, September the 20th. Think of it as an interdisciplinary celebration, a time to do science about the sky and climate, a time to make art about it and a time to reflect on how important climate and sky are to all of us. And we have a cool list of suggested activities for Sky Day that you can do with your students or with your organization or as an individual. And again, that's all at skydayproject.com. And you're talking about our citizen artwork called Sky Day Project, in which people upload photos of the sky from all over the world to show our world leaders in a visual, symbolic way just how many of us care about climate and want us to come together to protect it for the benefit of all. And you can view that at skydayproject.org. Now, you're doing this on September 20th. This is the Global Climate Strike Day in Chicago. It's in different places. Yes. It's at different times. But uh, that's that's something that you can work with, I imagine. Yeah, we're really looking forward to talking to those who are taking part in Climate Strike and encouraging them to think about ways they can collaborate with artists and scientists to do more. Um, now, you've enlisted some interesting folks in the educational aspect of this. And one of them is on the line with us now. It's uh, Dr. Catherine Stevenson. She was the lead author of a North Carolina state study that got a lot of attention because it focused on middle schoolers and the role that they can play. Um, thanks very much for joining us, Dr. Catherine Stevenson. 
Thank you, Jerome. I'm pleased to be here. Tell us, uh, tell us about your study and how you came uh, to do it and focus on middle schoolers. Sure. So um, our study, um, the main finding was that uh, kids can learn about climate change, first of all. And when they learn about climate change, they become more concerned. But not only that, they can effectively teach their parents about climate change and then parents subsequently become more concerned about climate change. And this is true um, across the political divide in this country? It is, uh, which was something we found um, we found to be fairly unique in the body of literature around how people think about climate change. And so this the uh, parents increased concern about climate change across the board, but even um, more specifically, that increase was particularly pronounced around among conservative parents and among men. All right. Now, <laughs> um, this is that's pretty wild news. I mean, you made CNN, you made all sorts of it national <laughs> news. People were like, "Oh my gosh, it's middle schoolers who are the key to all this." Um, how do you how do you feel about the reaction to this report? Well, we um, I can tell you, when the data rolled in, we were um, similarly kind of floored by it, um, but um, we've been kind of excited about the reaction um, and. Um, in, in a couple of ways. One is that um, we really, in our kind of research group, really believe in the power of kids to make positive change. And we think this is one study that shows that they really can, at least in their own families. Um, so climate change uh, communicators have long found that climate change communication is really difficult among certain um, segments of the population. And that generally is because people think about climate change, not necessarily because how much they know about science, but because sort of who they are, um, which can include their politics. And so it's it's hard to change people's mind about climate change. Um, and from no matter how you think about it, it's hard to change people's minds. And what we found was that kids seem to be able to do that. Uh, so we were, we were, we were excited about it because we really do think kids can make a positive difference, and we were excited that it resonated with everyone else. Uh, did, does, how did the global climate strike figure in all that? Did, did that speak to you differently after you saw these results? It did. Um, so I want to. So so our study was a bit different in that we are. So in my mind, the climate strikes are really about advocacy. It's about kids um, getting on a platform and really taking to the streets and becoming really active in the political process. Um, I think that's great pers- on a personal level. But in our study, we really it was about education. We were um, just teaching kids about climate science. And then they were going home and in the context of their families, talking about uh, how um, just talking about what they've learned at school. So we were not, this is not an advocacy campaign. Um, so I do see them distinct in that way. But the parallel that I see is that kid, people seem to be resonating with the message when it's coming from kids, um, which I think is, I think is potentially really hopeful. Catherine, I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit about um, what you did with this study, because as I understand it, you took a previously existing curriculum, but you added some things 
Could you tell us about that? Sure. Thanks, Ben, for that question. Uh, so you're right and that it was a previously existing curriculum um, that we had developed um, a few years prior. Uh, we've been looking at climate change education in the context of North Carolina for about eight years. Uh, we started just understanding how cl- kids think about climate change. And then we designed a curriculum to see kind of how they learn about it. Um, and the curriculum that we um, that we designed initially was a climate change it was a it's a well it was modeled after a curriculum called uh, Project Wild, which is a wildlife education uh, curriculum that's used nationally. Um, and we modeled it after that because we really thought it used some best practices for just science and environmental education. Um, and we took lessons from there and um, used that format to teach kids you know, the difference between climate and weather, um, how weather and climate change patterns seem to be changing over time, and get kids to engage on what that might mean for wildlife. Um, so that's the curriculum that, that had existed. And then we just modified it in that we added an assignment where kids just went home and talked to their parents about what they were learning in school. Um, and that's that's. That's kind of it. Um, so we we just used a really solid curriculum that um, that followed best practices for science and environmental education, and then just added a layer where we structured a conversation for kids to com- just talk to their parents about what they were learning. And also, Catherine, I think there's an outdoor service project piece. Yeah, there is. So yeah, thank you for that question. So so when we think about high quality education, um, there's several things that seem to stick out. Um, and in the context of outdoor and environmental ed, um, uh, we want activities that are hands on, um, that are sustained, meaning it's a it's something that you come back to again and again. Um, repeated interventions are a great thing. Um, it has a local and an outdoor component, so you get kids outside in their own backyards um, or at least in their own communities, understanding how the curriculum um, uh, comes alive kind of right right where they are. And then it's also led by committed teachers. So those were the attributes that we made sure to embed in the curriculum, and then we layered on this interaction with parents. Dr. Katherine Stevenson is the lead author of a North Carolina state study that talked about uh, middle schools and how they talk with their family about climate change and the difference we, it can make. Thanks uh, for your work, and thanks a lot for talking with us. Thank you. I appreciate your um, your call. We're going to swing over and talk about uh, some of the Illinois curriculum that's out there. Yeah, right. So when Daniel Horton, who's on our Sky team and who leads the climate research group at Northwestern, sent us the study Catherine and her colleagues did, uh, we found it really, really interesting. We were very impressed by their approach and by their findings, and we wanted to bring it to Illinois and Midwestern schools. Um, So... The module that the uh, study used was North Carolina-centric because it was done in North Carolina, and we wanted to uh, rework it um, so that it was Illinois species and Illinois habitats that it was talking about. So uh, Dr. Anna Nesbitt and I um, have set to work to recalibrate that module and bring it to Illinois schools. Dr. Anna Nesbitt is a member of the Sky team, uh, Curriculum team. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for the invitation. Explain what you did. How did you how did you rework this baby? So basically, we reviewed the curriculum that Catherine and her colleagues had put together, including Daniel Lawson, um, who is now a postdoc, uh, 
the curriculum was focused on the montane and coastal climates of North Carolina. So we don't have that here. We have prairie, wetland, um, Great Lakes area, a lot of agricultural lands. And so we needed to really adapt our curriculum uh, to be specific for Great Lakes and Illinois. So how we're going about this is to kind of separate perhaps urban areas from more rural agricultural areas and key into species in those regions in particular for Illinois. So for instance, um, in the Great Lakes region, we might look at uh, how fish are impacted in the Great Lakes in Lake Michigan. Um, and interestingly, uh, as far as clim- climate change in the United States goes, the Great Lakes Basin is actually seeing um, a, a large amount of change and, and perhaps the largest amount of change of any region in the U.S. And um, the Great Lakes themselves, on average, have, have warmed about um, 1.6 degrees Fahrenheit over the last 30 years. And for perspective, that's almost as much as the entire globe has warmed on average over the last 140 years. So just in 30 years, we've met that um, Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Everybody so. should know that. Yeah. <laughs> Not just kids. Um, yeah. Now, the, um, the, the, how do you roll this out and get this to schools? Well, that's interesting, and we're working this out. Ben has arranged um, for us to meet with the Illinois Science Teacher Association, and so we're hoping to make contacts there. We both personally have ties to middle schools in our um, uh, locations. So I'm located in uh, Champaign-Urbana, and I actually volunteer to teach at the campus middle school for girls in my spare time, and I have contacts at a local middle schools, and Ben has contacts as well. So we're starting there, um, kind of testing the curriculum, tweaking it, and then we hope to spread it across Illinois and perhaps um, look for funding to host workshops as well to sort of disseminate these ideas. And Ben has a lot to say about the service project component that we're working on together. Yeah, right. So my job is to find conservationist organizations and forest preserves, for example, that manage habitats that are struggling with climate change, who are eager to help us create a menu of outdoor service projects that middle schoolers can do to help. So in this way, we will not only ensure that students learn about climate change and its impacts in a hands-on way and raise climate concern among the parents through intergenerational learning, but also give our partners the opportunity to groom a future army of invested donors and volunteers. So, um, so you're, you're asking people, science teachers and conservation organizations, to, to, to get in touch. Yeah, so we would love middle school science teachers particularly to get in touch with us through the curriculum page on our website, which is at skydayproject.com forward slash curriculum. There's a contact form there. And just to say again, Anna and I will be speaking at the Illinois Science Teachers Association Conference in Peoria on Friday, October the 18th from 1.50 to 2.30. So we hope to connect with science teachers then. So please come join us uh, and, and, and say hi. Dr. Anna Nesbitt is member of the Sky Day curriculum team, and uh, Ben Whitehouse is uh, the executive director of the Sky Day project. We're going to be back with more after the break. We'll play out with a little bit of uh, music that we're going to have uh, after the break as well. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and we're talking about the Sky Day Project, an initiative that combines art and science to teach people how the sky functions and how climate works. We are here with Ben Whitehouse, the founder and executive director of the Sky Day Project. And uh, Ben, we're going to talk next about art and how it influences people. Yeah, right. So at Sky Day, we have several tracks. And on the art side, um, Dr. Sam Illingworth and I have been talking for a while about the potential for artists to be really helpful with the climate uh, climate change conversation. Sam's done a, a lot of work in this area. He's a poet. He's a performer. He's a scientist and a professor of science communication as well. And Sam Illingworth is uh, on the, is uh, not with us yet, so you know, we're going to swing over and talk with another artist we've got in the studio with us, and that's uh, Petra Bachmeyer. Petra, good to see you. Hello, Jerome. I'm great. It's great to be here. Um, now, Thank you. Petra, you've worked um, previously in the National Resources Defense Council, and, and we've talked about uh, one of your projects. Explain uh, your White Wanderer piece. Yes, in 2007, we were observing the Larsen Sea Ice Shelf. It was um, kind of a spectacular moment for the science world as a gigantic ice shelf broke apart from Antarctica, and it became a trillion-ton iceberg that is floating into the Weddell Sea, A68, I believe it is called now. And this moment was really fundamental to just wrap your mind around what is the scale of disintegrating Antarctica and how does it impact us everywhere? How does it impact sea level rise? So this became really the trigger of the White Wanderer Project, and we are fortunate to collaborate with Douglas McEill, who is a scientist, a glaciologist at the University of Chicago, and he has been studying the motion and the seismic activity of glaciers in Antarctica for over two decades now. So he has an, a unique data set of seismic activity in Antarctica that is equal to earthquakes. So once an iceberg, iceberg breaks apart or glacier breaks off, it's as powerful as an earthquake and it sends a signal throughout the entire ocean system. So we, all of this happens unrecognizable. And it's really part of like our conversation about climate change. And we are and taking the, his data and making it into music. Yeah, that, that, that's the wild thing. I did see the White Wanderer piece when it was up uh, on the train station. When I came uh, into work, it was on my train station. And you reproduce the crack in the ice shelf uh, against, the, against the building of the train station there. And then you played the the sound of this crack as the, that it makes if we could hear it in in the water. Correctly. So um, this was like really the launch of the White Wanderer, 2017. And 2018, White Wanderer soundtrack played at Rockefeller Chapel as part of Earth Day commemorations. Wow. And that was a really powerful moment to hear this sound in a, in a sacred space. And we felt like... What can we do with this? This is very meaningful to us, using science to talk about climate change and giving that a voice, taking a piece of a landscape, information from a landscape, and making it experiential. And so we are working with ESS, Experimental Sound Studio, in an out-at-year residency, collaborating with Catherine Young and creating a piece for orchestra, which will be performed in Millennium Park February 1st. 
Wow, that's uh, that's really amazing. Uh, so, yeah. what, what, really so amazing. What, what do you call it? <laughs> we actually call it Requiem, a white wonder. It has a sad connotation, but it is the death of an iceberg that we are kind of bringing, giving voice to, and creating an experience that can talk about climate change that is hopefully something we can all kind of feel for a moment. And once again, when's the date of, on that? February 1st in Millennium Park. February 1st in Millennium Park. Got to be there. Is this um, where in Millennium Park? Because it's really cold on February 1st. <laughs> we can't be outside, can we? Uh, you can be at the Pritzker Pavilion Band in indoors. And the plan is that we also take over the sound, the speaker system for an audio installation. So there's both an outdoor and an indoor component. All right. Well, that's fascinating. I will look forward to that. That is really an impressive thing. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much uh, for being with us. Uh, Petra Bachmeier, an artist, and talking about her White Wanderer and uh, project and, and how it's evolved into a, a symphony now. <laughs> thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ben. Now we've got uh, Sam Illingsworth on with the line with us. He's a scientist and poet and a senior lecturer in science communication at Manchester Metropolitan University. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Thanks very much for having me. Lovely to um, Ben, say hi to your friend Sam. Hey, Sam. <clears throat> hi, Ben. How are you doing? Good. Great to hear your voice. So I was telling how you and I have been talking for a while about um, how artists can um, get involved in engaging community with climate change. You're one of the people who knows a great deal about this. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Ben. So as I'm sure has already been discussed, I think one of the most important things about climate change is that it's this global interdisciplinary problem that affects everyone. And because it affects everyone, the solutions aren't just going to come from scientists, right? They're going to have to come from everybody. And I think there's an arrogance if scientists think they're the only people who are able to solve it. And there's perhaps a naivety if non-scientists think that scientists can be relied on to solve it. However, in order to start coming up with you know, alternative solutions from non-scientists, we really need to start engaging people in dialogue around climate change. But climate change is this really difficult thing to start talking about, right? Like when you talk to your friends about things, you want to talk to them about the football or you want to talk to them about the weather or you want to talk to them about what you had for dinner last night. You don't necessarily want to talk to them about this esoteric concept known as climate change. But it's really important that we do. And that's what I think the arts and what I know the arts can play a really pivotal role in because what the arts can do is they can help to localize, they can help to personalize this global concept of climate change so that we can start to engage our friends and our colleagues in conversation around this. Well, what's your so, – Sam, last year in the program you, you gave us a haiku – about sky coup. a sky coup sky about, coup. The, about the sky. And um, it, you, uh, what's, your, what's your entry point? What is your artistic entry point when you talk to people? Do you just lay the sky coups on them? Do you, how do you do it when they're talking about football and you want to change the subject to climate? I, yeah, I mean, this is a rarity that I'm not speaking in haiku, to be honest. That's just how I go about my <laughs> daily life normally. But the, I, I think with, with art and with poetry, I mean, and with climate change, it's really important you know, to have an entry point, but to, for it not to be preachy, 
So normally when I go about working with audiences and I do a lot of work with audiences that are traditionally underserved and underheard, you know, those audiences that are the least contributing towards anthropogenic climate change, but probably the most affected. And how do we start conversations with them? Well, what I start doing as Ben does brilliantly with the Sky Day project is getting them to think about their environment and something that they love. So look up at the sky. Think about an area or a parkland or a um, wildlife reserve or a reservoir that means something to you that you visited and just, just picture that. And then think about what would happen if that wasn't there. And then think about the steps that we can do in order to protect that thing that we love and that we have a personal resonance with. And one of the ways we do this is through writing poetry. And the reason that we do that is that when you write a poem about something, about something that you love, about your ideas around climate change, they're seen as basically an idea that can't be challenged because it's a poem. So if you're a non-scientist, you don't necessarily feel nervous or apprehensive about sharing a poem with a scientist than you would, for example, sharing your ideas or ideologies around climate change. So writing a haiku, writing a poem, writing a piece of art, making a game, these are really, really valuable ways that we can start to establish dialogue. And that's why the, the call for artists that Ben's so wonderfully leading and through the Sky Day project is vital because art offers this facilitatory medium to bring together scientists and non-scientists. Absolutely. And Sam Illingworth is a scientist, a poet, and a senior lecturer in science communication at Manchester Metropolitan University. Thanks a lot for joining us. Um, now we are going to delve even further into the arts, Ben, and you've brought some friends, a band. Jim and the Povolos are here. Yes, they are. Yeah. Fantastic. And they're going to sing a song about CO2. This is, this is going to be nice. We're going to have a nice little musical moment here. And I'd like to uh, shout out to Meredith from the Field Museum, who's in the band. Adler Planetarium, I'm sorry. And uh, they beat us in Bike to Work Week this year. Oh. Carbon dioxide, CO2. Come from what does it do? It's a chemical compound, it's all around. The trees breathe it in and we breathe it out. So why is that bad? What's wrong with that? The problem is that we're producing too much of it. Like when you turn on the car, CO2. You take a long shower, CO2. You see the smokestack, CO2. A coal power plant burns. See? Senator, a letter about. See, oh, oh, 
Cage yeah. in the Pavlos, the Fantastic. CO2 song. That was outstanding. Nicely done. Um, now, we're going to uh, swing over and talk with Nicole Stott now. She is uh, she's an astronaut. She's an artist. She's an astronaut. <laughs> she's an aquanaut. She's everything. Hi, Nicole. Hey. <laughs> Down here on Earth. <laughs> Now, uh, tell us about your role in Sky Day. What what uh, how, what does an astronaut bring to the table here? Whoa! Oh well, I don't know. I, I I think that I had the opportunity to see the sky from the other side, which is kind of um, well. I'll just say it's really impressive. And for all of us who look up and think it goes on forever, it does not. It is a very thin veil of uh, beautiful protection between us and that black void of space. Um, so. I, I'm I'm supporting uh, Ben and the Sky Day project any way that I can. When were you up in the sky, looking at the International <laughs> Space Station? I was up I the, up beyond the sky twice. Uh, ended 2009 and spent a little over three months on the International Space Station, and then the beginning of uh, 2011 on the final flight of the Space Shuttle Discovery. And explain your artistic element, uh, Ben referenced earlier. Uh, well, I had the chance to paint in space, uh, which was kind of a whim-ish thing. And then when I, long story short, when I retired from NASA and was looking for how I would communicate the experience, perhaps to audience, like was already discussed by some of the earlier guests, to audiences that might not be thinking about what we're doing in space, how it's all about ultimately improving life here on Earth. I thought art was a wonderful way to do that. And then I got tied in with a really great group of people who were bringing two things I love together, space and, and art. And uh, we formed the Space for Art Foundation where we're uh, basically doing space-themed art therapy programs. And, and one of the projects that we just completed is uh, called Sky Space, where we're asking the kids to think about that thin veil of protection between us and space, which is really what provides our planet with, with its... You know, it's Absolutely. protective ability. It's um, life support for us. Nic Nicole, and Nicole, we'll have to leave it right there. Nicole Scott right. <laughs> is a NASA astronaut. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for your contributions to everything artistic and sky-oriented. And Ben Whitehouse, give us a plug for Sky Day here. Yeah, well, this is a call to artists, to bands, to poets, to brave curators, to theaters, to symphony centers, to artists working in all disciplines and in all communities. You already know this. Artists move culture forward, and today there's no issue for culture more important than engaging on climate change because too many of our friends and neighbors are asleep about it. So we're asking you to get involved, create art, create experiences, let us know about them, get in touch with us at skydayproject.com, and uh, we look forward to seeing your work. Ben Whitehouse, painter and executive director of Sky Day Project. Thanks a lot for joining us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.